0: What what a a great thing. It wasn't until Nancy was 40 when she came to St. Stephen's that she truly understood what it meant to follow Jesus. So that's only 50 years she's been doing that. If only all of us could celebrate such a milestone as well. So happy birthday, Nancy. (laughs) Irony. Irony can be really humorous, can't it? Like the wallabies wearing gold. (laughs) (laughs) Irony can also be deeply tragic. Uh, I think more in the former category, the, the greatest irony of my life Maybe I'll pick up a few more by the time I'm your age, Nancy. The greatest irony of my life, I reckon, is that I never quite finished reading the book Let's Get Motivated. (laughs) Irony can be humorous, uh, but it can also be tragic. And the passage that Fred read to us uh, so clearly too, thank you, Fred, the passage that Fred read to us Begins and ends with what I would consider tragic irony. I wonder if you picked it up, how it begins. Turn to it if you've closed it up. John chapter 18, page 1085, looking at the section beginning at verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Do you see the tragic irony in that statement? They bring Jesus to Pilate, the governor but won't enter his palace out of concern for ceremonial uncleanness. In fact, it seems not so much a concern for ceremonial uncleanness in and of itself, but that that will exclude them from celebrating the great feast of the year, the Passover. People who've distorted their system of justice, arrested an innocent man, acted against God in bringing his Messiah to be executed and they're worried about their ceremonial uncleanness. Men who are seeking the death of an innocent man, those who would put expediency over principle, who are morally compromised, concerned about their ceremonial uncleanness. There's a deep irony here, isn't there? An irony that goes even deeper. Their desire to avoid ceremonial uncleanness by entering the house of a Gentile, a non-Jewish person is in order that they might celebrate the Passover feast. But ignoring the fact that the very one who fulfills all that the Passover led to was Jesus himself whom they're giving up to be executed. In fact, they're unwittingly participating in fulfilling the Passover but excluding themselves from it. The Passover was the meal, you might recall, uh, that remembered uh, God's rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so they were to eat it each year to to remember God's rescue of them in the past and his promised rescue of them in, in the future. And they were particularly to remember this by slaughtering the lamb, the lamb which had, whose blood had been painted over their doorposts so that God's judgment would pass over them uh, and not fall of them in Egypt. And they would remember this by uh, slaughtering a lamb uh, to become the centrepiece of this meal. And so in their desire to eat this, they hand Jesus over to be killed. Jesus, who himself, through his slaughter, becomes the true Passover lamb. The one who truly bore God's anger that it would pass over his people. That God's wrath would fall on him and not on God's people. That God would bring about his rescue of his people once for all. This is what they were unwittingly participating in and yet in their desire to enjoy the earthly Passover meal, the sign which was to point to something much greater, they were forfeiting the benefits of the heavenly Passover. They were excluding themselves from this rescue. And in further irony, to avoid uncleanliness by entering a Gentile house they're nonetheless very willing to use the Gentile to bring about their murderous plans. A tragic irony as they seek to avoid ceremonial uncleanness whilst giving up an innocent man. And it seems as they bring Jesus to Pilate, there's a bit of a power play going on here. Uh, They won't go in, so he's forced to come out to them. They want him to concede to their demands. They present Jesus' case closed. all you need to do is execute him. In fact, they take issue with the fact that Pilate wants to find out what's the story behind this guy. What charges do you bring against him? And so to push back on him, Pilate says, "Well, take him himself. Uh, take him yourself." If you're not going to come up with a Roman charge, then there'll be no Roman sentence. But as they declare, we have no right to execute. Indeed, the right of capital punishment was something the Roman authorities guarded jealously. They don't want their subjects just deciding for themselves who they're going to execute and put to death. So under the Roman governance of Judea, Indeed, the Jews had no right to execute people. And so there's this power play between Pilate and the Jewish authorities, each wanting to get the upper hand. But we see as, as uh, this episode unfolds that the real power is not between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. The real power is with Christ and God's sovereign plan. So in verse 32... John, the author, just makes this comment after the Jews say, we have no right to execute anyone. He says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. God is sovereign in all these things as they unfold and, just, and are playing out just as Jesus had said. So according to the Jews, the Jews' plans were to execute Jesus. Back in John chapter 11, we see this plot explicitly laid out. Uh, Caiaphas, the chief priest, declares the plan that they need to follow. If we let him go on like this, the Jewish leaders were saying, back in John chapter 11, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Uh, they were seeking to take his life in order to preserve their nation. God intended that they take his life in order to fulfill his plan, that that one man would die for the sake of not only the Jewish people, but for all the children of God. And, and we're told he, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. You see, the Jews, had they had the power to exercise capital punishment, the punishment that they would have chosen for blasphemy, which seems to be the main issue they have against Jesus, is stoning. Uh, And even without that capital power, we sometimes see uh, indications through the Gospels and the Book of Acts uh, that crowds would come together and almost in mob violence try to execute people through stoning. Uh, Jesus had to escape from one of these uh, situations. And indeed, in the book of Acts, Stephen is uh, killed in such a way. But that wasn't God's plan, that Jesus died by stoning. Back in John chapter 12, Jesus recognising that the time has come for uh, him to face his death. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Uh, There's a bit of a play there as Jesus says, as he is lifted up. It can mean in the sense as he is glorified, but also as he is lifted up on the cross. The cross was the Roman method of execution. And so Jesus would only be lifted up in that way if it was the Romans who executed him. But there's something else here as God's plan is fulfilled at the expense of the Jewish plan. See, the the Jews' concern was that all the world's going after him. That's why we need to kill him and save our nation. But Jesus had said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. They sought to kill him to avoid people going after him. Jesus said his death will be the very thing that draws people to him. And so we see as Jesus is brought before Pilate ostensibly on trial that it's the Jews themselves, the Jewish leaders, who are tried and found guilty. Guilty of this deep religious hypocrisy. Guilty of trying to bring about their plans to murder an innocent man. They're morally soiled whilst seeking to retain their ritual cleanliness. We wouldn't be guilty of that, would we? We're not guilty of trying to retain our ritual cleanliness while being guilty of far deeper things. Maybe that's not our challenge. But the kind of religious hypocrisy behind that, is that something that we can feel guilty, uh, be guilty of? Religious hypocrisy which time and time again is shown to be so offensive to God so offensive to many. It's black and white to us when we see it, isn't it? That that tragic irony of uh, ceremonial cleanliness whilst being morally soiled. But we too can be guilty of identifying specks in others' eyes whilst having logs in our own, of straining gnats while swallowing camels, Where where might we be sensitive to going after the superficial things whilst ignoring the important things? Of, Of claiming moral superiority in one area whilst showing a deep moral ineptitude in others. We need to be wary of this. It's easy to be blind to it. We need to be wary of it. We can have a great knowledge of love and not demonstrate it. We can have a great understanding of God's grace towards us and show no grace to others. We can be worried about injustice when we're cut off in traffic. Or when gold medalists are excluded from closing ceremonies. Oh, the injustice! And yet ignore great injustices around us. We need to be wary that we too are not guilty of religious hypocrisy. So back to the Jews and Pilate. It seems that the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate and they try to pitch Jesus as some kind of political threat uh, to force Pilate to act against him. We don't hear the exact charges but Pilate comes to Jesus and says, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? It's hard here when it's hard to read emotion. We don't have little emoticons in the text to help us to understand this. So when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It could be a sense of surprise. Really? You? Their king? It could be a dismissive uh, question. Or it could be Pilate going through the hoops of the uh, judicial process. Okay, I need to ask you, this is the charge against you, how do you respond? We don't really know with what intent Pilate asked the question, but we see how Jesus responds. Have you drawn your own conclusions on this? Is this question coming from you, or has somebody else put it to you? What do you understand it to mean when you ask me, am I king of the Jews? Are you asking me, am I a political activist? Seeking to raise up an army to overthrow the Roman forces? Or has this question come out of a Jewish context? As no doubt it has. A Jew might understand the claim to be king of the Jews as a claim to be God's promised king, the Messiah. Well, Pilate seems uninterested in exploring that question. Whatever kind of king of the Jews you are, he says, it was the Jews themselves that handed you over to me, their leaders and their people. If you're the king of the Jews, you haven't even got them on side. Well, Jesus goes on to answer the first question. In response to the second, verse 36: My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is saying, I'm not a political threat, I'm not an insurrectionist. My kingdom is of an entirely different order. Just as Jesus had told Nicodemus back in chapter 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is of an entirely different order. He does explicitly reject the idea of a political kingship. That would be a risk, a threat to the Romans. My servants would fight to protect me if I was that kind of king, in fact, Peter had tried to do that and Jesus said, no, you don't get it. I'm not that kind of king. It's not that kind of a kingdom. And previously, after Jesus had fed the thousands with, uh, miraculously with bread and fish, he slips away because they want to make him king by force. He's not that kind of king. His kingship is of an entirely different order. It is not of this world. Jesus is not saying that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world, but that it doesn't have a basis or origin in this world. It comes from another place. He's not saying that his kingdom is not active in the world. Indeed, he expects his kingdom to break into this world and to affect it but not in any way that's effectively aided or indeed resisted by armed force. You are a king then, said Pilate. This gives Jesus the opportunity to elaborate on his kingly mission. As soon as Pilate says, you are a king, he goes on to say why he came into the world. His kingly mission is all about testifying to the truth. And by this, Jesus isn't meaning just telling people what is accurate and reliable. But to testify to the truth is to reveal the very truth of God. What God is like, who God is. To reveal the truth of God, to reveal the way of salvation. The way to know God, to be in relationship with God. God the nature of his judgment. And it's how people respond to this revelation of the truth, how people respond to Jesus as he shows himself to be God's son. It's how people respond is how Jesus exercises his kingship. As people respond to him, they are saved by him. His kingship is about saving his people by revealing the truth. And so those who are rightly related to God, those who respond rightly to Jesus, to truth itself, can then grasp Jesus' witness to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he says. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone, whether they're Jew or Gentile, Jesus is saying, I'm not just king of the Jews. I'm king of everyone. And as Jesus has this conversation with Pilate, Jesus gives an invitation, a gentle challenge to Pilate. Everyone who who is on the side of truth listens to me. The question to Pilate, question to us, is: Do we listen to him? Are we indeed on the side of truth? Jesus is, in fact, not asking Pilate to make a judgment about whether he's king of the Jews or not, but to make a judgment about him: whether he truly reveals God, and if so, how will he respond? If he decides against Jesus, then he judges himself as not being on the side of truth. If we decide against Jesus, we judge ourselves not to be on the side of truth. Well, Pilate plays his hand, doesn't he? He's not really interested. What is truth? Again, no emoticons, but I suspect he's not asking a deep philosophical question at this point because he doesn't hang around to hear the answer. It's perhaps a more cynical comment, what is truth? And walks out to exercise pragmatism over principle. He's not willing or caring for an answer. And so for Pilate, like many of us, many in the world today, if the truth is inconvenient... And demands us to respond to it, if it demands us to acknowledge it, to make decisions, to act in a certain way, then we don't want to hear it, do we? We want to hide from it, then we don't need to deal with it. If the truth is inconvenient and demands a response, we hesitate. The decision before Pilate is the decision that God places before us this morning. How will we respond to Jesus? If we reject Jesus, we show ourselves not to be on the side of truth, that we're not part of his kingdom. But if we listen to Jesus, if we recognise him as the one who truly shows who God is, who truly offers us the opportunity to know God through relationship with him. Then the call is for us to submit to him as king. Not just to relate to him as a friend, but to submit to him as king and enjoy being part of his kingdom, knowing that we're in a saving relationship with God. Well, I said this section... Starts with a tragic irony, but also ends with tragic irony. Pilate wants to get himself out of this dilemma, doesn't want to deal with the truth of who Jesus is, but he doesn't want to give in to the Jews' demands either. I find no basis for a charge against him, he says in verse 38. But is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Here's the second great tragedy of this passage. Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus, who is brought before Pilate, Accused of being one who might lead a rebellion, accused of being the king of the Jews, a political threat to Rome and to Pilate, but shown to be innocent. Barabbas, a man known to have committed insurrection, to have led an uprising. In the other Gospels, we're told guilty of murder. And so the choice is a lawbreaker or, or the lawgiver. The one who is not a political threat or a rebel versus the one who is guilty of it, a terrorist. And the tragic irony is that the people choose the lawbreaker over the lawgiver. They release the man who had committed murder in his struggle against Rome, condemning a man who was falsely accused of being a threat to Rome. St. Augustine wrote, not the saviour, but the murderer, not the giver of life, but the destroyer. Well, I suggested that uh, the great irony of my life was not finishing let's get motivated, but what if there was a tragic irony in my life or yours, a tragic irony on this level, a tragic irony of having the truth presented to us clearly and yet rejecting it, of hearing the truth and ignoring it. This is the tragic irony that we're introduced to right in the beginning of John's Gospel, where John tells us, speaking of Jesus, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It would be tragic if the greatest irony of our life was that the source of life was the one that we rejected. But many of us have already made the decision to follow Jesus, to accept him as the truth. And so we need to continue, though, to guard against those tragic ironies in our life. Because to know that Jesus died for us, to know that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, and to live as if it never happened, would be a tragic irony. For us to continue to seek after the things, to live the way that Christ died died to save us from, would be a tragic irony. To seek after the things that he has freed us from. So our life could end in tragic irony as we reject Jesus or reject what he's done for us. But the tragic irony in this passage can be a wonderful irony for those who see it. Because as Barabbas is set free and Jesus is condemned we see the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Which can be tragic if we ignore it or wonderful if we embrace it. Because just as Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, Jesus the innocent one suffers and dies in the place of all those guilty ones who put their faith in him. Jesus, the innocent one, suffers not just in the place of one insurrectionist, but in the place of all the hypocrites, all those who speak harshly to others, all those who fail to love as God has loved us, all those who are selfish, who are greedy, who lose their temper, who hate who look down on others. Jesus died in the place of all those guilty ones who put their faith in him. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Do you accept it? If you do, then that's a wonderful irony. If you do, then you know yourself to be on the side of truth of those who listen to Jesus and a part of his kingdom. If you're not sure, if you think you can stand on neutral ground, then you face the same challenges, Pilate, how will you respond to the truth? But as we listen to Jesus and accept it, we can know that we are truly part of his kingdom, that he truly died for us. So let's pray and ask that God would help us to live in the light of this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, that even though we rebel against you, we sin against you, in your great love for us you sent Jesus into the world, the innocent one who might die in our place, so we might be part of your kingdom. So we ask, Lord, this morning that you might continue to reveal your truth to us through your word that we might respond rightly to us to it help us never to ignore the truth to turn away from it but to embrace it more and more and so we ask lord in the light of what jesus has done for us that you might spare us from tragic irony the great irony of rejecting the truth you have revealed or the daily ironies of chasing after things for which Christ died to save us from. Humble our hearts, Lord, that we might truly listen to Jesus, to submit to him as king in every area, and to keep on living for him, confident that we are members of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.